Hi, everyone. This is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome to another edition of the Food Institute podcast. This week, Lauren Shun, founder of Mother-in-Law's Kimchi, joins us to share her story and how she founded her company, and also the prospects for kimchi going forward. But first, I'd like to ask all of our listeners today to continue sharing our episodes on social media and via word of mouth. These personal referrals do us a lot of good, and we really appreciate it when you do so. And I'd like to thank those of you who have already done so. And our growth is really dependent on our audience. So if you haven't already subscribed on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify, we ask that you do so now. So with that all said, I'd like to welcome Lauren to the show. And to start us off, could you share your personal work history and really what brought you to the decision to start Mother-in-Law's Kimchi? Thanks, Chris. Um, Yeah, I mean, I started the company, I founded the company back in um, the fall of 2009. So uh, this, you got to remember, was a time uh, right um, during the the recession, sort of at the height of it, um, because the Lehman Brothers crash was about a year before that. So up to that point, um, I had been working for a, a global financial services consultancy. Um, so I guess we are as a company that I was working for at the time, we were sort of, you know, kind of knew that this big storm was coming. Um, so to that effect, I mean, I was working in the in the marketing department, and um, I had gotten laid off um, just about a year before I, I started the company mother-in-laws. And um, so that timing was really fortuitous um, because it just really that that year of just really kind of deep soul searching and and my sort of um, passion and desire for um, for food and wine and I was also you know in in the wine business um, prior to that as well and uh, marketing um, so um, was really kind of gave me this um, this this path to to, to entrepreneurship. Um, little would I I have known that it would be kimchi, because in my mind I had um, just really enjoyed eating kimchi like many Koreans. Um, pretty much every meal that you got at home was had some sort of kimchi in it. Um, what happened at at that at that point in time for me personally in my life as I was searching and seeking for. Um, a real calling, if you will. And, um, you know, the, this kimchi that I was, I was living in New York city. Um, and every time I'd come and visit my mom, um, you know, and, and her restaurant, she would, uh, give me a, a bag full of kimchi that I would then carefully, um, carefully, uh, wrap, um, in, in a very specific way, uh, to end and put it in my luggage and bring it back with me to New York. So, it was at that time that I, I really just thought that this would really kind of um, somehow I, I knew that it, it was some sort of way in which I needed to really kind of talk about kimchi that hadn't been talked about. So that was sort of the the premise of, of mother-in-law's kimchi. And now I'd like to kind of dive in a little bit to the history of the company. Now that we know how you decided and, you know, some of the forces and the aspects that made you decide to start the company, what was it like as a founder creating this product? And could you share maybe a little bit about the evolution of the company from when you founded it to the current day? Sure. Um, I mean, I think really what comes to mind is that at the time I, I knew that from just a uh, my love of, you know, uh, of, of kind of really, I mean, I'd read the New York Times Wednesday food section like it was 
the stock market or I just was really deeply engrossed and passionate about the food business. And so in my mind, I really thought, huh, there's there's a real kind of um, trend and just um, audience towards Korean flavors and Korean food. And it was also just at the time that um, the, the kimchi taco trucks uh, in, in, in LA were really making headlines using technology of Twitter. So I thought, wow, you know, it's really it seems like if Americans don't know what kimchi is, it's still, it's being talked about. It's, it's a word that's sort of out there on Twitter and you know, kimchi taco trucks. So, so I just really saw an opportunity to really, um, really kind of capture an audience with kimchi. Now, little did I know that it was going to be as hard as it was trying to explain to a vast majority of American um, consumers about kimchi and what is kimchi. But um, at the time that I, I really saw a window of opportunity. Um, so launched essentially uh, in the fall of 2009 at the Lower East Side Pickle Festival is really a, a specialty product as, as something that was um, probiotic and really started talking about kimchi as a probiotic food, as something that was raw and living. And it was at the same time economically where um, in the New York food scene with Brooklyn food scene and all of this kind of um, culturally, I think, significant um, uh, trends and and uh, sort of arts and music and everything really all, you know, food uh, coming out of Brooklyn. And so um, it was, a, it became a real great, you know, way to communicate um, the the kind of importance of kimchi and sort of what it is, how to use it, you know, and and really kind of start um, start really talking about that. And uh, and there was, you know, at the at the time, a real um, just support around local foods, local food movement, craft foods, and just sort of a, a way in which to kind of go back uh, to the roots of food um, that was really uh, burgeoning this idea of authenticity. And, you know, of course, that was also at the time that Whole Foods was really um, had expanded as a household, you know, name and just a place that people were really caring about where food came from and natural foods and all of those things were all being defined. So it was a really exciting time um, to start with kimchi. And then about five years after that, um, launch uh, the shelf stable gochujang um, for mother-in-laws. Uh, and um, and that was just another sort of signifier of um, sort of gochujang as, as another sort of marker of, of Korean flavors and, um, and its inception into the mainstream sort of food scene. So, um, so those are our two key product lines um, right now um, that we still have anchors in as um, category pioneers, if you will, for kimchi and gochujang. And something I'd like to talk about, you were talking about that authenticity, and I think this speaks to it, but could you explain the cultural significance behind the name you chose for the company? When you told me this, I thought it was pretty interesting. So I think a lot of our audience members would probably enjoy it too. So could you share that? Oh yeah, sure. So yeah, to constantly explain to people that uh, the recipe of, of our, our flagship um, kimchi comes from my mother's, you know, uh, recipe for the restaurant. The rest, her restaurant is called Mother in Laws, and the significance of that is because in Korean culture, um, a mother in law would really spoil 
um, the son-in-law and just it's part of a dowry also, but it's the idea that um, a mother-in-law would spoil um, anyone with delicious food. Um, so the name that, you know, she chose for her restaurant, um, it, it would be, it would be very significant, um, for good food. Um, how the mother-in-law also plays an important role in the kimchi making is that, um, when the, when the bride marries into her husband's family, the most important recipe for kimchi making then gets handed down by the mother-in-law. So um, mother-in-law, either way, you know, whatever side of the bride or the husband, you know, you, you're guaranteed to get delicious food and delicious kimchi. So it plays a very, very important role. Um, so decided to keep the name and really kind of um, speak to the tradition of kimchi and where, where it comes from. Um, and it really sticks with people. People really love the name. So sorry, I just want to make sure I'm getting that straight. So your mother was the one that founded the restaurant, right? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and the name and of I think, her restaurant is called Mother-in-Law's House. And she founded that, I believe, in 1989 in Garden Grove, California, correct? Right, right. So she's so, been there a long time. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how that impacted your leadership style. You know, seeing your mom in the food industry. I know you said you had a career before you went into the food industry and finance, but how did that affect your ability to kind of lead this company and bring it to where it is today? Uh, great question. You know, I, 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 I think in my mind and despite, you know, I think, and I, I know many, many founders and especially I think so many multicultural founders in the food business and whatnot, you know, and I think that deeply being an immigrant and, and seeing my mother's role in, um, in, in entrepreneurship and becoming a restaurateur and just really, was had a huge impact on me. And I think especially how her leadership with uh, her whole crew, um, largely even, you know, in the back of the restaurant, um, you know, the, the, the ladies who work there, it, it was really made up of a lot of women. So it was a very, you know, woman founder, woman based um, uh, team of, of folks is, you know, and, and it really inspired me tremendously in a way that I hadn't realized. So I think really when I was doing that kind of deep soul searching of, of, you know, what kind of company and what kind of, you know, business do I, do I want to create? I, I knew that I didn't want to open a restaurant, um, but it was something related to food and, and, and it was something related to the way in which, you know, to really kind of lead and, and, and have a voice, you know, as, as a woman founder. And I think, you know, 12 years of mother-in-laws, I can certainly say that it's definitely, you know, uh, skews towards more um, women on the team, but really what makes me um, really proud is to, to, to feel like, you know, there, there are especially the younger employees that come on board and really feel like they have a voice, you know, in a very entrepreneurial minded company, small company, small team doing big, mighty things. And so it really encourages me as I reflect back on, you know, my early career in corporate America and how much harder it was to, to speak up and be vocal and to, to really have feel like you have a voice in, in, in the whole um, of the company and the direction. So I think it's just a really amazing um, opportunity to be able to create this type of um, work environment uh, for, for 
a lot of the young women and just, you know, women in general. So it feel very empowered by that. And I think even the name of your organization really showcases female leadership. So I would agree. I think that you definitely put that forward pretty quickly when you do your marketing and branding, even with just the name. And I'd like to take that just a little bit further. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts, you know, you were saying you know, in the early financial aspect of your career, how it was difficult for you. And you kind of spoke to this already, but I was just wondering, you know, in your 10, 15 years now working with mother-in-laws, have you seen uh, any kind of shifts in the food industry specifically when it comes to that female leadership? You know, I know you have your company, but just looking around to distributors, retailers, you know, other touch points you've had in the industry, do you see that kind of shifting a little bit? I mean, I think what's interesting is that um, there's definitely more and more women-founded companies and definitely more, um, uh, you know, BIPOC type of, you know, just because I think that it's natural, uh, the way that we're getting information about about food and interest in, in different cultures and, and, and really in a deeper way, too, than just like, oh, I, I like, you know, Mexican food and yeah, I don't really know why, but just in, in a deeper way, I think that the representation is really, really exciting. Um, I think what's hard is that still you get very much from the distributor and sort of the backside of of a consumer product company, um, the distributors, the retailers. It's it's still a pretty old business, and you know. Um, I think while they try and create these opportunities for the smaller um, companies and women-owned companies and whatnot, it's still much harder to, to break through. Um, but I, I, I think that it's changing. I really feel like there, there's a tide that is changing, maybe particularly this over this past year with COVID and just, I think, with everything that's going on um, uh socially, economically. Um, but I will say that it still feels it's a very old business in, in terms of the back end of the supply chain and um, retail um, distribution. So Lauren, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the production of kimchi. And in one of the talks we had before we got on the line to record today, you compared it to the production of wine, cheese, and yogurt. So I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on some of the challenges and some of the you know differences in producing uh, kimchi and how it might be a little bit more like an art than just you know food production. So could you elaborate on that? Sure. So I mean, when I first started. Um explaining to consumers about kimchi and what it is, you know, I explained it as basically that it's a Korean pickle, but um, unlike the way that um, most Americans were familiar with pickling tradition of pouring hot vinegar, I'd say, well, kimchi is, is a live um, probiotic food because, um, you know, the kimchi as it's fermenting with a salted vegetable, if you will, it's producing this lactobacillus, which is um, itself um, fighting the bad bacteria that can make you sick and creating a, a safe pH that's making its own vinegar. So, you know, I'd have customers asking me, hey, you know, how much vinegar did you put in? And, and, and so this kind of familiarity and this idea of creating a safe food around fermentation also was the way in which, you know, you fermented wines in, in, in the European tradition, cheese making, um, beer making, all of this sort of magic of fermentation that happens as you are 
putting some sort of a starter or salting agent to to transform the bacteria into something that's safe uh, to eat um, and something that's beneficial for your your health and your gut health. Um, so it's a tradition. Uh, it has its you know the most um, sort of basic form of cooking even before there was fire. It's like this Latin word fermentation comes from the word febre, which means to boil over. This process of boiling over, I mean, it was crazy when I actually went on a bourbon trail um, tour with my husband a couple of years back, and there we were in Kentucky, and the smell of um, corn mash bubbling over and fermenting was like similar, same smell that I remember making soy sauce that my grandmother would make. So this idea of fermentation and, and the flavor of fermentation is something that is, you know, um, that is shared by every kind of food. To, it's a means of preservation. And, uh, and so in the Western tradition, it's very much the same way in which you see that um, traditions of cold uh, belt, Northern uh, European food traditions of uh, Eastern Europe and sauerkraut making and all of those things is just very much the salted vegetable of, of the cabbage and really converting into sauerkraut and this live kraut. So um, the, the fermentation is everywhere. And I think that it was a real um, renaissance about 12 years ago uh, when Americans really started to have um, a real knowledge and just an understanding and desire for it. It was about the same time that kombucha was also just becoming a consumer product. So it really, I think, fits in nicely with all of that um, tr trend of fermentation and, and the desire for it in a broader context. Um, so that's really um, been a key knowledge. Um, and in 2012, did the cookbook about the kimchi. So it's really, I think, I would say in the last five years even that I, I get far less questions about when kimchi is than, um, than in the early days. So that's been really a tremendous value as I really um, see the evolution of um, customers and just people, pal American palate really changing and, and wanting to have this, uh, this, this uh, healthy way to, 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 to have, um, the fermented flavors is part of something that is of the natural world and less processed. Yeah. And I think during the pandemic, at least at the food Institute, we tracked that there was a lot more interest in these natural foods, functional foods that might have some kind of immunity boosting, you know, factor. And I don't want to get you in trouble with the FDA. So I won't ask you if you think those products that you're making are doing that. But I do think that there was interest in these types of products, kombucha, kimchi, uh, you know, krauts, anything that was kind of natural and might have had something that could help with your immune system. So I guess my question really is, did you see demand rise during the pandemic for your products? You know, are you still seeing demand rising? I was just wondering what that kind of situation was like for you as 2020 came and, you know, really disrupted things a lot. So could you share about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like many um, natural foods, but definitely the, being an immune boosting food and kimchi being one of them, um, was something that consumers really um, gravitated towards. And so we did see a huge COVID bump and just unexpectedly and just like many, many small companies just was trying to keep up with demand. Um, 
Um, and, uh, and we are seeing a, a bit of a dip just because I think at its height, it was really um, kind of a, a surge. And, um, and I think as people are going back more to the, their normal rhythm of maybe eating out more and eating other types of food, but it was, um, I think it was a silver lining because I think that, you know, with these types of not that anyone could have seen a global pandemic like this coming up, but through these sort of um, difficult times, it really, I think, forces uh, people to see the silver lining of of trying to be more healthy and trying to really incorporate better eating habits. And, and, and I think that um, part of this kind of immune boosting, good for you type of eating has always been sort of a long tradition that's been involved in traditional foods uh, throughout the world. There's, you know, reason why you, you have garlic in that recipe or you have onion and you've got, you know, the red, um, even for kimchi that, you know, you have the chili flakes is, is a, is a immune boosting kind of anti-inflammatory, you know, there's vitamins, uh, you know, in, the, in these types of food. And so there's always this kind of correlation between um, the, what you eat and what you put in your body and like your well-being. And I think that the great thing about it is, is that if more consumers really kind of got that mind-body connection and what you, what you choose to eat can make you feel better and food is medicine type of thing would be a really great, um, I think, way in which um, more people shopped and really thought about um, consumable foods. Um, so I think it's really exciting to see. Yeah, that's definitely a topic we've seen a lot more interest in here at the Food Institute. Food as medicine, you know, regardless of, you know, demographic, people are really interested in this. And I think you're right. That's one of the silver linings of the pandemic is it has caused people to take a look at what they were doing beforehand and maybe reevaluate, you know, what they're putting in their bodies. So I definitely agree with you on that and kind of a little pivot here, but, you know, we're talking about these different types of consumers and who might be changing their eating habits. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what type of customers you do see purchasing, purchasing your product and maybe how that shifted over the last year or two, you alluded to this earlier, but I was just wondering maybe you could share a little bit of the historical tract and, you know, how your consumer base has kind of expanded. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think generally when you stand at a grocery store and, and, and do these demos and, you know, I, I, I do realize that most of the people that shop are, are, um, are women. And, uh, but I think, you know, from that sort of educated, uh, woman who's shopping at Whole Foods, uh, but just the Whole Foods, natural grocery, you know, shoppers to sort of beyond. And I think we've got conventional, um, uh, shoppers as well. It's, it really feels like it's kind of grown younger and broader, um, our consumers. And, um, that's really exciting. I think, I mean, there's a whole just generation beyond Z that are younger, that are growing up with these multicultural flavors and kimchi is something that they just rolls right off, you know, their, their, their tongue. I mean, just, and, and, uh, and I can certainly attest to that just from having um, taught some kimchi making classes in Brooklyn with some, um, you know, six, seven year olds that were really interested in, in chili and just, you know, things that were spicier than you would ever have, you know, access to. Um, so I think that the demographics of, of eating um, well and eating um, fermented foods is going to be much more natural for this 
younger um, generation of, of kids growing up. Um, so definitely broader and kimchi just being something that, you know, whether it's on a grilled cheese sandwich or, you know, as a side dish or, or on their salads or just, it's just something that's going to be just, I think, very natural, come very natural and not something that, you know, where I used to get in, in the early days of uh, our customers asking, well, how much kimchi do I need to eat a day to feel good, you know, and less is that sort of, um, I need to eat this, but like something that naturally becomes something that they have with every meal, just, you know, like in the Korean tradition. Um, and I always thought to myself that maybe one day if I, if, you know, my, uh, Growing up, you know, I go to anyone that was non-Korean and open their fridge or always be like a, a, a bottled milk or something like that. And I said, yeah, funny, every every Korean household I go to, you open the fridge and you see a jar, you know, big gigantic jar of kimchi. So I'm hoping to envision that happening one day where, you know, you've got every American sort of having some jar. It may not be the largest jar, but a gallon sized jar, but um, a jar of kimchi in their fridge. So, um, that's exciting. Yeah. It's interesting as a millennial, I don't want to say we had, you know, maybe culture shock when you were approaching some of these new food products, you know, international foods. And I think there was a willingness to try it, but it's interesting to see Gen Z, which is growing up with it. And to your point, you know, the generation that's after Gen Z, which are not just going to be growing up with it, but it's going to probably be a major part of their food culture, having access to all these different international flavors and, and products, including kimchi. So I think it'd be interesting to see where that kind of goes. And speaking of where things are going to go, um, one of my last questions here for you is just kind of what's on the horizon for mother-in-laws in the second half of 2021 and beyond. Do you have any news that you could share about the company, any projects you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really um, the, the hibernation, if you will, of being in, in COVID is like probably like many people personally, as well as many businesses, we've been working on some exciting um, product line innovations. So really just continuing to push as the authentic um, authentic brand and um, category pioneer of fermented foods. Um, so we've got something that we're working on um, to just expand our product line for kimchi as well as um, I think for our shelf-stable products. So it just continues to be exciting launches and really kind of grab um, attention to, to more consumers and really being able to share um, our love of um, authentic Korean um, flavors and uh, through fermented foods um, and uh, really excited about those prospects coming up, you know, to next year and beyond. And if someone wants to learn more about your company and keep up with all of your latest updates, where should they go? Uh, so we have our website, Mill Kimchi um, stands for mother-in-law's kimchi, M-I-L-K-I-M-C-H-I, as well as our Instagram page is a great resource for everything that's cool happening with kimchi. And, and I have been told that I am the kimchi queen and making kimchi cool. So I hope uh, you guys will visit and agree. I was going to say, after speaking with you for about a half hour here, I couldn't agree more. So I really want to thank you for the time today, Lauren. Thanks for joining the show and thanks for sharing everything you know about kimchi. Thanks so much, Chris, for having me. I really enjoyed it. So I think that'll do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. If you're new to the show, please remember to follow, like, and share. But until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Mm -hmm.